Hi there, and welcome to the Itchy Fig Travel Podcast with me, Joe O'Connor. The show where one special guest talks all things travel, the trips that have shaped their lives, what travel really means to them, and indeed, what it might look like in the future. Now, if there's one profession that enables a person to really get the lay of a land in another country, it has to be the foreign correspondent. Tasked with uncovering unique stories about a given part of the world, they have to get right into the heart of that place and its people. My guest for this episode is Margaret Ward, a former award-winning foreign reporter and editor with Irish public broadcaster RTE. Through her work and outside it, Margaret has travelled to more than 60 countries, from Afghanistan to Rwanda, and was the first person to blog on the RTE website from inside North Korea. We actually got in through concern, really. They helped us to get in. They were in the process of being thrown out, so they thought, you know, they would they'd do this final thing of to help us to get there. But anyway, the North Koreans didn't like the program that we made, so they got very cross afterwards. As foreign editor, Margaret led RTE's international coverage from 1999 until 2007, when she went to China to open its bureau in Beijing. She's also reported for the BBC, CBC Canada, Deutsche Welle and France 24. It's not that it was all fun or it's not that it was all easy or, you know, it was, it was a constant challenge to even work mm-hmm. out what was happening there. It was a constant challenge with the language. I mean, I had very limited Mandarin, you know. I was quite dependent on the translator that was working for me. And obviously I learned a certain amount when I was there, but it is really hard. Uh, so you're you're trying to grapple with this enormous place with all the different things that are happening there. But it was utterly fascinating and it probably yeah. one of the best experiences of my life. When we caught up, Margaret spoke about a love affair with France that started in her student days, revisiting Belgrade after the Yugoslav War, immersing herself in Costa Rican nature, and the curious case of a Cleary's bag in Chechnya. And then we got to the gates of this Russian base and he kind of waved this bag out the window at the guy just to show it was him. And I noticed it was a clear his shopping bag that he still had from when he had worked in Ireland. <laughs> Our accreditation for Chechnya was a clear his shopping bag. All that and much more on this episode of the Itchy Feet Travel Podcast. I hope you enjoy. Margaret, thanks a million for joining me on this show today. It's really great to have you. Yeah, great to be here. First and foremost, how has life in lockdown been for you over the last few months? I mean, it's been mostly fine. You know, I think we've all had our ups and downs with it, you know. In some ways, I've been fortunate in that because I've also been helping out with my dad, who's 90. I've been down in Kilkenny part of the time. I was there for a month um, because he needed some care at home. He had a stroke earlier in the year. And I've been back down to him again a second time. So, you know, I've been able to do that because he's a vulnerable person. But it's also given me a change of scene. You know, it's got me out of my own house to somewhere else and back to where I'm from originally and where the park is open and you, know, you can get out for walks on the river and stuff. So I've been lucky from that point of view. 
Um, yeah. And how is your dad? He's good, yeah, he's pretty good, you know, considering everything. He's great, really. He's very in touch with the world and what's happening and the news and all the rest of it. Um, okay. okay, well, that's, that's so, good yeah, to hear. And I think otherwise, you know, okay, I haven't had a huge amount of work on, so I've been doing some work from home, but also had lots of time to get to know my neighbours. I've been living in this street for, well, on and off for 17 years, and I know far more people after these few months than I have in the previous 17 years, you yeah. know? Yeah, it's so, funny how it really brings people together, right? Yeah, and, and also, you know, I've caught up with a lot of friends overseas, even people from my China days, you know, I think people have sort of got back in touch with people because they've been sitting yeah. at home and they've had time to reconnect. So, it's, you know, that's all been good, you know. Yeah, so there are some good elements to it for sure. Um, well, look, Margaret, we'll jump into what we have you on the show for, and that's to talk about travel and, and certainly looking at your your personal website. You know, it's, it's amazing some of the places you've been to. And the historic moments like the fall of Milosevic in Belgrade or you were in Benghazi in Libya, uh, among many places, as you mentioned, China, a correspondent for T there. Um, but just I, I wanted to ask you, first of all, what is it that excites you most about travel before we get into um, some of the, these places you've been? I think it's the freshness of the whole thing. You know, I think your senses are on alert when you're away in a different place so that you're taking in the world you know so much on uh, on so much more of a bandwidth than you are in your normal life i think you notice so much more you know and i think that's part of it for me you get very immersed very quickly and i mean you could argue that's to a degree an escape from the rest of your life um, because you barrel into this new world and and that's everything for you but you know it's new people new places and noticing differences and celebrating them you know i mean i've had i've been extraordinarily lucky the number of places i've been and the range of places that i've been and yeah it's it still excites me though i can be satisfied with things in ireland so much more now than i might have been 20 or 30 years ago you know i appreciate them too are you still excited when you are in, in a new place does it still give you that buzz Oh, yeah. I mean, I was I was actually in Zambia just before the lockdown started. I came back on the 1st of March and that was a new country. You know, I hadn't been there before. Um, and yeah, absolutely. You know, because it's a ch every every time you go somewhere that's unfamiliar, you know, you're challenged a bit. You're outside your comfort zone. You have to adapt. You have to try and, you know, I like to get a handle on how is the place really ticking, you know and talk to talk to lots of different people about different aspects of their lives so it is quite pri you're quite privileged as well as a journalist you know compared to if you if you go you know maybe as a business person or a, a tourist like you have a kind of license to talk to anybody and mm -hmm. and people yeah. are will extraordinarily will open up to you you know so mm -hmm. that's one of the great privileges of it i think and um, margaret do you have an earliest travel memory that comes to mind well, I was trying to think about that. And I mean, I, I remember when I was four years old, we moved from Navin to Carlo. And that's one of the earliest memories I have, I suppose, you know, apart okay. from little glimpses as a small child. Um, so I do remember like packing the car and the kettle and then taking the kettle out at the other end. So <laughs> if you call that a travel memory, that's probably the earliest one. Um, I mean, we did lots of trips in Ireland as, you know, kids because um, we lived in, 
apart from different places from where our grandparents would have lived, you know, so we would have been going to Dundalk or going to Dublin to live in Clonfakenny, stuff like that, with all the dolls on the back roof shelf of the back of the car and the teddy bears, because they all had to be brought with us. And is there somewhere, or where was your first holiday abroad? So we went to Wales um, on the ferry when I was probably about 10 or 11. Um, you know, my parents loved traveling. Obviously, you know, they were limited in what they could do with four kids. Um, but we, we went to Wales then, and then we went to France when I was about 13 or 14, I think. And we used to okay. go there quite a bit after that. And I really had a long-term love affair with France. You know, I studied there and I, I spent a year there as a student. So my oh, mother actually hitchhiked in Europe in the 50s with her best mate. Oh, wow. Yeah, and she also took her scooter to Scotland as well and went all around over there. So, you know, I used, I would have grown up with a lot of those things. My, my, my parents, they went to Spain, I think it's a honeymoon, but they, a couple of years later, they had saved up money for a washing machine and then they blew it on a trip to France instead. <laughs> so that's been a kind of family characteristic. Then is there a trip that you would say gave you a fascination with the world, Margaret? Well, I think the whole connection with France probably was part of that, you know, and I studied yeah. French and I spent a year in Grenoble University when I was 19. And okay. I suppose the thing that was interesting there was like you weren't only meeting French people um, mm -hmm. because being in the southern part of France, Grenoble had a huge number of students from Africa. You know, there was probably 20 percent of the campus or something like that. So okay. you were meeting people from Senegal and they were living on our corridor or from Morocco, you know, you had food from other places, music from other places. Mm -hmm. So that probably opened me up to a world beyond Europe. And I mean, we're talking the 80s here, so it wasn't usual to be connected much beyond Europe at that time, unless it was maybe the States. Mm -hmm. So that was the first taste of the exotic, I suppose. You know, there used to be couscous in the canteen menu. And, um, you know, it opened you up to something different, yeah, to different cultures. Sure, sure. And of course, in the 80s in Ireland, you weren't meet, meeting many Moroccans or Senegalese. No, definitely not. No. Margaret, I don't know if I can draw you on one place, but do you have a favourite travel destination? Well, I, have a, I have a lot in my top five or six, you know. <laughs> okay, um, yeah. France, Italy, probably in more recent years, you know, I've really grown to love Italy. Um, okay. But probably the place that's wowed me the most um was probably Costa Rica actually and and that oh, well, okay. came to me that was quite much later on like that's only about six years ago I went there mm -hmm. um, and I've been back once as well um, and I really adored that yeah what is it about Costa Rica you would say uh well I guess it's what I talked about earlier like that whole feeling of immersion but in Costa Rica it's really your immersion into the natural environment you know I lived in a very basic place in the very far south of Costa Rica near the coast and you know I was I had iguanas you know marching around my garden toads in the shower you know a bat nesting in my jacket being woken up by howler monkeys in the morning and snakes in the grass when you were walking out of the loo and all this kind of thing so it was it was Pretty mind blowing from that point of view, and also, also surprising how quickly you can get used to it. You know, I mean, the first day I was like always wearing my hiking boots, going everywhere because I was terrified I'd stand on something, be stung or bitten, or you know. And after a few days, you're in your flip flops and you're yeah. like everybody else is. You know? 
And then on the opposite end of the scale, Margaret, is there any place you'd never return to? Well, there's a few places now that I wouldn't be in a hurry back to, even though, you know, it was really interesting to be there, but for various reasons, mostly to do with them being war zones, you probably wouldn't go there again. Uh, there's one place I probably won't ever go back to, and that's North Korea. Um, and, uh, and, you know, I mean, it's very hard to go there anyway, but uh, they told me when I, after I was gone that they'd never let me in again. So I presume right. if so, they stick to that, oh, I won't be going oh, there yeah. again. And of course, you, you were reporting for RTE from Pyongyang, is that correct? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So we, I went to Pyongyang, uh, I think it's about 2005, about that time. And we actually got in through concern, really. They helped us to get in. And they were in the process of being thrown out. So they thought, you know, they would they'd do this final thing of, of bring us over to help us to get there. Yeah. We went under our oh. But then, anyway, the North Koreans didn't like the program that we made. So <laughs> they got very cross afterwards. Yeah. Okay, and how how was it over there? Were you being shepherded around? Was everything staged? Were they um, watching everything you we did? We were shepherded around to a fair extent, yeah. But 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 we were allowed to get out into the countryside, which is really rare. And we did get up to some of the other towns, um, or some really really basic places. But I mean, they wouldn't let us stop. Say. You know, we would notice things on the road, say, between places like people eating grass on the road or um, or people carrying all these really heavy things because there's just hardly any transport. And they'd be, anytime mm. they wanted to move it, they'd have sofa on their back or they'd have sacks on their backs. And they wouldn't let you show that. You know, they wanted you only to film yeah. the places in the city that were more modernized or that kind of thing. Of course. And how long, how long was the stay there altogether? I think it was about five or six, maybe five days, six days, something like that. We yeah. did a piece for primetime on it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Fascinating place. Yeah. And we went to South Korea afterwards. So we flew back to Beijing and then we went to Seoul and we interviewed a lot of um, North Korean dissidents in Seoul who had escaped from North Korea. Of course. Korea. Right. And that was the thing and that really annoyed the North Koreans, was the fact that we did that part, you know. I get you, I get you. The closest I've been, I was at the DMZ last yes, year, actually. Yeah. So, yeah, you've probably been that you can, you can peer over through binoculars, but that's the kind of closest I've ever gotten. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, yeah, it's a fascinating place. Is there anywhere, Margaret, that you'd say you most enjoyed reporting from? I suppose adding it all together, I would probably say China. Um, just because I got to have a much more in-depth relationship with the place you know because I was actually living there for three years so you got to see it at a, at a whole lot of different levels you know and and I mean it's an enormous country and it, I got to so many different parts of it so that's probably it's not that it was all fun or it's not that it was all easy or you know it was it was a constant challenge to even work mm -hmm. out what was happening there and um, it was a constant challenge with the language I mean I had very very limited um, Mandarin, you know, I was quite dependent on the translator that was working for me. Um, and obviously I learned a certain amount when I was there, but it is really hard. Uh, so you're, you're trying to grapple with this enormous place with all the different things that are happening there. But it was utterly fascinating and it probably yeah. one of the best experiences of my life. Yeah. 
I can imagine. How many years were you over based over So it was three, three and a half almost, yeah. Yeah, I was only meant to be there for a year and got extended and then I really didn't want to come home. So I stayed on myself for an extra year, even after she, you know, it, it was meant to be a project for a year and it, it so it ended eventually. Okay. Yeah. And of course, you were tasked with going over there and setting up this Beijing office. And how did that feel? It must have been very daunting just landing in this, you know, very different, culturally yeah. different place. I and, mean, it and was. Starting out. It was, yeah. Um, but I mean, I ha you know, you, you do get help there. Like there was a whole contingent of foreign correspondents from all around the world who were there. So, you know, uh, in that American phrase, I reached out to some of these people. And, you know, quite a lot of them. And I, I, Lindsay Hilson was already there. She's a friend of mine from Channel 4. So she, you know, I stayed with her for a week and she introduced me to loads of people and ultimately helped me find the, the cameraman that I worked with and things like that. So, you, you know, you did have help and help from the embassy just with some of the, you know, just the logistics and the paperwork and all that sure. kind of stuff. So, and yeah. did you move around China much or... Oh, mostly, yeah. Mostly Beijing. No, yeah. we went. Oh, I mean, I can't. We used to have a map up with all the provinces that we'd been to. Um, and I, I can't remember. But we got to a, a huge amount of them, you know, and, and including like getting into Tibet eventually towards the very end of my time there. Um, so, no, you know, it was different. They had just brought in these new rules because it was just before the Olympics when I went. Um, they had brought it prior to that if the foreign correspondents wanted to leave Beijing or Shanghai they had to have a minder from the local provincial government with them wherever they went um, but that was actually got rid of um, and it was part of the whole deal I think at the Olympics and you know opening up to the world and stuff so now in practice it didn't always quite work out like that because you would get somewhere and be trying to work on the story and either the, the local provincial authorities or police either didn't know about this rule change or didn't care about it and wanted you away from whatever the story was so like we were detained a few different times we did have various hassles at different times um, but you could go pretty much anywhere yeah okay and your experience going to t Tibet how was that yeah so I mean I got to Tibet you know we weren't allowed that was the one place you were not allowed to go by yourself and so the only way to go there was on a trip organized by the foreign ministry. So I eventually got on one of these trips. And so obviously they were trying to show you what they wanted you to see, you know, schools or factories or something that showed progress from China's involvement in Tibet. Um, but I, I, another friend from the, the London Times and I got up really early in the mornings and we would go off and do stuff ourselves, you know, at five o'clock. So we did manage to go and visit some of the Tibetan monasteries and speak to the monks that were speaking out against China. There had been a big uprising in the Tibetan region the previous year. So we did manage to get to those places and speak to some of those people uh, by kind of outwitting the minders. Yeah, okay. I'd say that was a job in itself. And how did you find Tibet in general? Was it, I suppose, a very spiritual place in general? Yeah, I mean, we were mostly just in Lhasa. Um, and, you know, there are a lot of tourists, Chinese tourists, a lot mostly that go there. So there's a sort of a touristy trail around the monasteries and so on. Um, but yeah, I mean, people are lovely, but they are, you know, reticent to talk to you 
uh, about things that are political because even if they don't get hassle at the time they will get hassle later if they know people know that you've spoken to them so you do have to and sometimes in those cases and that was, this was also the case with dissidents within the rest of china was that you had to be sure that these people understood any risks that they were running in talking to you so that was fine with the kind of high profile human rights activists who knew exactly and could make a decision as to whether they wanted to speak to you or not but other people you know say for example some families after the sichuan earthquake who would speak out about the schools and how badly built some of them were you know they would get a lot of grief afterwards from the local authorities and you would want them to be really clear about what they might have to deal with mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. okay do you tend to return to places where you've reported from, Margaret? Um, I've returned to places to report again. You know, I've always been really keen to follow the story. So, you know, I went back to Serbia many times after after the 1999, the, the war there, um, in the Kosovo War. Uh, um, and so I went back, you know, for the fall of Milosevic and for his arrest and his transfers to Hague and all those things, his funeral even later. Um, and again with Afghanistan, I went back many times. Um, so I did, yeah, I always wanted to go, I went back to Rwanda to make a documentary after the initial time okay. I was there. So yeah, but in terms of going back for holidays or something like that, mm -hmm. yeah. um, not so much because a lot of these places wouldn't really lend themselves to to holidays, you know, or would be kind of True. too risky to be there if you weren't there for a particular purpose. Of course, yeah. I, I suppose I'm just wondering, like, what it's like to be, you know, in any place you've reported on when you haven't got work to do. Yeah. Know? I mean, I have been back to Belgrade a couple of times just for fun, you know. Um, and because, I mean, bizarrely, you might think, you know, even in 1999 with bombs coming down in Belgrade, you know, there was still a kind of a party, sort of a, a sort of a strange, you know, parallel universe of things, parties and fun and, you know, even in the middle of everything. So I have gone back and, you know, it's been great to see, not, not recently, but, you know, in the immediate few years afterwards. And it was great to see it recovering. And, of course, I imagine you still have friends and contacts in, in many of these places. Yeah, I do, though. You know, people move, especially if they're friends from journalism, they tend to move around a lot. Like even most of the people that I knew in China from the journalism sphere have moved on to somewhere else. You know, that Even my translator, who's Chinese, is now living in the US. So th th some of these people aren't there anymore where, where I would have known them originally. But yeah, I do keep in, I do keep in touch with people, in, in, and as I said, you know, during the lockdown, I was in touch with people in, that I'd worked with, you know, in the Philippines or other countries. Great. Um, there's a story actually. I, I just or a reference on your website, and I wanted to ask you about it because I was looking for some kind of travel story or more a, a story related to your reporting, and I see you you blagged your way onto a bus carrying the Russian chief of staff in Chechnya. 
Oh, yeah. Uh, could, could, you, could you give me some background? Yeah, well, uh, the thing was, like, for a couple of hours, I didn't even know that he was the Russian chief of staff. I only worked that out a bit later. Uh, it's one of those okay. things where you, you had a scoop and you didn't even know you had a scoop. But anyway, fortunately, somebody <laughs> told me who he was. Um, how did that happen? Yeah, that's, I, it's one of the, it evolved at Cleary's shopping bag as well. Um, okay. Yeah. So uh, this, so we're talking back in 1999, I think this was. So it would have been the second war in che- Russian war in Chechnya. And I was in a place called Ingushetia, which was on the border with Chechnya. And there were like lots of refugees coming across there. Um, but you weren't allowed in. Um, it was also very dangerous to go in. Like there'd been some British engineers had had their heads chopped off. Uh, so it was quite dangerous. Um, so the only way really was to go in somehow with the Russian army, you know, which was obviously going to be a facilitated trip. Um, and I went to this, we drove quite a long way to even to another province. And um, we got talking to all these soldiers at the gate of one of these enormous Russian military bases. And I wanted to speak to the press officer for the government of Chechnya, which was the puppet Russian government. And uh, oh, nobody wanted to let us in. And so anyway, we lent them our sat phone to ring their girlfriends and stuff, their mothers. So that kind of softened them up. And eventually they went and got this guy who came out and uh, he said he was the press officer of this Republic of Chechnya. And um, when he discovered I was Irish, he said to me, oh, do you know Andy Shepherd?" And I said, well, I do. I said, because actually I sat beside Andy Shepherd for about five years. He was the foreign editor in Orty. And he said, oh, I was the task correspondent in Dublin for seven years. So we got chatting to him and he said, come back in the morning and uh, we will bring you. So we came back the next morning, drove back over the snow and oh, it was hours and hours away from where we were staying. Came back and uh, we had to call into his hotel to pick him up first. And then we got to the gates of this Russian base and he kind of waved this bag out the window at the guy just to show it was him. And I noticed it was a clear his shopping bag that he still had from when he had worked in Ireland. <laughs> so we no go way. in and we get on the bus and CNN are on the bus because they ha- this had already been arranged for them, I think, and he managed to tag us along to it. And we get down to this place in Chechnya and... Uh, and... Uh, this uh, Russian chief of staff is there, but I hadn't, I wouldn't have recognized him. <laughs> but we yeah. got, we got an interview with him and we brought it back and we sent it out uh, from the EBU uh, broadcasting point in Ingushetia. And like the rest of the BBC were absolutely raging. How did we get oh this? Oh my God. Yeah. No but it was way. all down that to the guy with his shopping bag. I love it. I love how it, <laughs> the Cleary shopping bag ended up in the most unlikely of places. Yeah. Well, actually, I, I started a world report. Yeah, I, I did a world report about it because it was such a quirky thing. And yeah. I started okay. with our accreditation for Chechnya was a curious shopping bag. <laughs> I love it. I love it. It's brilliant. A great story. How was Chechnya? Oh, look, we only saw that bit of it, you know. Yeah. And again, very yeah. controlled again. Like we were brought to a camp yeah. with these refugees and you know, try to talk to them and then they'd be trying to chase around, trying to check what they were saying. You know, these facilitated trips are never ideal. Like you're never going to get the true story, but it was very grim. I mean, it's a grim place. 
anyway and in November and December it's really really grim and it was the time when um, Putin was kind of just coming to power and really trying to make his mark and the whole thing was brutal and awful you know I mean I'm making jokes about the flu shop Mike but the whole story was grim and horrible yeah I can imagine okay Margaret I wanted to get your your thoughts on the future travel obviously with this pandemic and restrictions will be lifted soon slowly returning to some sort of normality but just personally how, how do you view it yourself do you think this is going to change everything or or do we just you know return to as we as you were you know in a year or two yeah i mean i don't know i i'm still not sure about how this how it's going to play out really i mean i think even before this I myself was feeling like I had to think a lot more carefully about travel and because I've done a lot of it I'm sure I've more than used up my carbon budget you know many times over Um, and while okay some of it was for work you know I've also had personal travel too so you know somebody last year asked me to go on a trip to Minneapolis to promote a new flight route or something and the highlight was going to be going to the Mall of America. And I was like, yeah, I just cannot justify crossing the Atlantic to promote people going shopping like this kind of stuff just has to stop, you know. And I think I think the short haul travel of, you know, going somewhere for a weekend because it's 20 euros or something, I think that is going to have to stop. Maybe not really because of the pandemic, but because of climate change and measures that will have to be taken to try and discourage that. But there's going to be a counter pressure of of places who are so dependent on tourism and now their economies are so damaged that they'll want to get that opened up again and press really hard for it so i think it's i think it's going to be tricky i I mean even just talking to friends already you know people who who three or four weeks ago were saying oh i'm not getting on a plane this year i'm not going to go anywhere until at least next year i'm not going anywhere until there's a vaccine and suddenly it's people are planning things you know so i i'm not sure it's going to have a bigger as big an effect as as we might have thought maybe even a month or two ago you know mm-hmm. i think yeah. i know i don't know anybody who'd want to go on a cruise again that's for sure um, but again yeah, you know I think that industry that industry is probably damaged and you know uh, that wouldn't break my heart i've ne- well i've never been on one you know i've been on ferries i've mm-hmm. never been on a cruise and i've seen them in venice and places and you know they're it's out of control you know, the scale yeah. of it is out of control. So yeah. I don't know how many people will want to go on those. Do you think you'll be exploring much more of Ireland? Absolutely. My plan at the moment is to be in Cleggan and in Ishbafen in August with my friends. That's, that's the thing we do every year. That's my plan. That's my only travel plan at the moment. I was supposed to be going to the Azores in May, and obviously that didn't happen. And maybe it'll happen at some point. I don't know, at the end of the year or next year, but I'm not in any hurry. You know, I, I think this, I'm really keen to get to the rest of Ireland. That's my main goal at the moment. Yeah, yeah. And I actually, I read your piece in the Irish Times. Well, it was a number of people contributing as, you know, people who are used to travel with work. And, and it sounded like you, you were kind of enjoying slowing down a little bit. Would that be right? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think, a, a, a lot of us have discovered that the same um, the same thing that I talked about at the start, you know, of 
observing, of noticing, of sort of soaking up your environment. You can apply that in any context, really, if you do it in a, any kind of thoughtful way. And, you know, I've, I've noticed more butterflies in my dad's garden than I've ever noticed before now. Are there more butterflies this year, maybe? Or am I just noticing these butterflies because I've had far more time to be sitting outside or, you know, wandering around without any without being in a rush to go to the next thing, the next place, the next event, the next gathering or whatever. I'm not sure, but I think I think from talking to people, people are aware that there's a lot to see in their own surroundings. Even the people who had to go and, you know, find out what what is there within two kilometers. You know, people have found little things near them that they didn't know about. And then finally, Margaret, is there a place abroad that you'd still love to just take off that's been kind of out of your reach all these years? Yeah, I mean, there's, I've never been to Australia or New Zealand, and I've also never been to South America. So that's two big places, you yeah. know. And I think if I could only okay. choose one of them, I'd probably choose South America. So for some reason, Argentina is more in my mind than the others. But that's just a kind of okay. a... I don't know, is it to do with the music or the glaciers and the, that kind of thing? Mm. Um, so that's that, w- that would be, yeah, on my list. Mm. Whether I'll ever get there now is another matter. Well, it's been great talking to you. Um, any other immediate plans? You've obviously hung up the war correspondent kit bag as well as the Cleary's bag. Um, w- will it be more general reporting and travel writing now? Well, I've done, yeah, I mean, I, I've done... You know, I do some feature writing. I do other things, you know, I do other research and I've done research on migration and other issues. Um, but I've also done some writing about development issues. I suppose I've done the Simon Cumbers Fund, been to the Philippines and to Nicaragua and those kind of social and environmental stories. And I'll still want to do those, you know, I still want to to find out what's going out on out in the big bad world or big great world. Okay. Well, look, it's been great chatting to you, Margaret, and hearing those stories and your experiences travel and work. And um, the best of luck with those projects in the future. And hopefully we'll be able to to yeah go beyond our 20 kilometers soon enough and uh, get back out into the world again. But it's been great chatting to you. Thank you. This episode of the Itchy Feet Travel Podcast was produced and presented by me, Joe O'Connor. Editing and music by Paul Lochran. Thanks again to my guest, Margaret Ward, for joining me. And thank you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to the Itchy Feet Travel Podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take care, safe travels, and chat soon.